Bible or smartphone or tablet, something you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15. This will be our, our third and final sermon in this chapter. And then next week we will do chapter 16 and we will have finished 1 Corinthians. We've been here since uh, really right before the summer, have spent a good portion of 2018 in 1 Corinthians, working through this letter from, from Paul, written from Ephesus to the church in Corinth, writing to a church where he is reminding them as they're in this kind of cosmopolitan city, um, a port city, a wealthy city where all the religions and cults and, and thought processes and philosophies of the world have arrived, that they are not building a temple there, that the church the, the church that he planted and ministered to for 18 months there in Corinth, that they are the temple of God. Like that their very behavior, that their interaction with one another will reflect the character of God to a world that's in desperate need of knowing him, which we live in the same world where we are called to be the temple. It's why this morning the church has come and the church has gathered, right? We have not come to church. We have come as the church, as the people of God. And so here in a little while, the church will leave and go back out into a world that is in desperate need of knowing truth and hope and peace and love and joy, and that we know that those things are found in the name of Christ, right? They are found in Jesus, and so Paul has written this letter to the Corinthians where he has dealt with, with 10 or so behavioral issues going, look, if you're going to rightly reflect the character of God, there's some things we're going to have to correct because you're not doing it. You're, you're not revealing who he is clearly. Paul started, our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, preached two weeks ago, um, started verse, uh, chapter 15 and just talked kind of about the necessity of of the resurrection and the Old Testament's promise of the resurrection. Last week, we looked at that we, um, that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, and because he was resurrected, there's a promised harvest, which is those who are in Christ who will follow after him in resurrected bodies. And now, this week, Paul's going to finish this chapter and, and some of the argument that is happening, because in Corinth, they're denying a bodily resurrection. Um, they, and they're, they're not necessarily opposed to it. They're just denying it. They can't imagine how it would happen or could have happened. They're not denying Jesus' resurrection, but the fact that we would have a bodily resurrection. And so Paul is going to continue um, to, to chip away at their argument. And, and I think if, if we're honest, um, resurrection is one of those things that as we talk about, it, it can feel very much like an Easter sermon, something that if, if we've been in church um, more than a couple times, we kind of check off the box of, yeah, we believe that Jesus um, was raised from the dead, so we're good to go. And yet, we still struggle with our own mortality, right? As we think about um, even conversations I had this week with my, my daughter, when I asked her, I said, hey, what's your biggest fear? I mean, it was immediate, sickness and death, right? Like, there's just this kind of natural, she hasn't been sick, right? She hasn't had a lot of death around her, but there's just this kind of natural bent of, we fear this thing. We know we're meant for more, and so we fear death. We fear our own mortality. We fear these things that could take our life. And so the resurrection has practical implications for us. And so let's pick up in verse 35 of chapter 15, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes this, But some will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. 
but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one of a kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. For there is a natural body, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All right, so, so Paul basically sets up kind of a debate here. Um, instead of accusing anyone in the church in Corinth of saying it and making it personal, he just kind of sets up, so it, we see this in verse um, 35, someone might ask, so how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? And so we think, man, those are, seem like legitimate questions, but knowing that they're coming from Corinth where they're denying a bodily resurrection, he immediately says, you're a fool, right? The person who would say this is a fool. And what he means by this is the Old Testament idea of a fool. We see this in Psalm 53.1. We see this in Psalm 14.1, that the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. And he says, you're asking questions, well, we can't imagine how a body would be raised, it doesn't seem like the, the, the physical body could come back out of the grave. It doesn't seem like the physical body could experience the glory of eternity. And so, because we can't imagine how a resurrection would occur, then we just don't believe that it does, was kind of their, their line of thinking. And so, Paul says, look, those of you who are thinking this way, that you can't imagine how it would happen, you're fools, because you've forgotten the key component, God, Right? that God is involved in this, and because God is involved in this, we can begin to see how this would happen. And so Paul begins to build an argument and, and begins to show them, even just from their own world, how it is that we can believe that something, right, can die and then that life can come from it, right? And so 
where I want us to really begin this morning is to see that what Paul is doing as he talks through the resurrection is that it's a call to worship. It's a call for us to see God rightly and correctly and to worship Him. And here's the first reason why, because God is not thwarted by death. Right? Like, we, we say that so, so easily, like, yeah, God's not stopped by death. And yet, death is the thing that across cultures, across the world, mankind fears. The thing that separates us from loved ones. The thing that we look so hard to live as long as we can, to have as, um, as, as peaceful and as lack of sickness in our life as we can. We look to avoid death, to extend life. And so as, as Paul is saying this, he's like, look, we fear death, and I want you to be reminded that God is not thwarted by death. His plans are not stopped by death. And he begins this with verse 37. So he, he's called them a fool in, in verse 36. He goes, what you sow, what you plant, does not come to life unless it dies. In verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God has given it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So we live in an area where agriculture is prevalent. So we understand, right, that, that you don't plant wheat that's already grown. You plant kernels, seeds, right? And, and the wheat comes from the grain, right? That, that we, we plant flowers and then flowers come up. Right, that we understand that we can bury something in the ground that looks completely unlike what is going to come up eventually. So what Paul is doing, he says, look, our bodies are going to go into the ground just like a seed goes into the ground, and then what comes up from that is life. And, and so he's showing there's continuity, that what was planted brings forth life. So there's continuity, but he's also going to say, but it's not the same. That we get something greater from what we put in the ground. So he's saying, look, if our bodies are placed in the ground, they will be raised, but they will not look, they will not be like they were beforehand. There's going to be something better about them. And he says, you know this, you believe this already because this is how you eat. <laughs> that you know that this is where your food comes from. That without death, right, that the harvest doesn't come. Jesus says this as well in John. That it comes out different. It comes out transformed. And so what Paul is saying is, look, it, he goes, it's the same and it's different. Right? That, that we would call both, right? You, you would call a sunflower seed, right? A sunflower. And then, but, but the seed and the flower, they're not the same, but they are the same. Like there's continuity, but they're different. He's like, we are going to, in our death, if we are in Christ, we will be transformed. God is not thwarted by our body being laid to rest. That he can raise it, and that it will be different. It will be ours, but it will be transformed. That there will be better qualities and better capacities. We see this, right? That we appreciate the harvest more than we do the planting. We appreciate the flower more than we do the seed going in the ground. It's like our bodies will be different, and they will be better, but they will be ours as we are raised. Right? And so we want to we worship Christ because of this, because he's not stopped by our death. We also want to worship him because of Jesus' resurrection, right? And we have to remember, Jesus' resurrection wasn't the first, right? That we've even seen in Christ that he raised Lazarus, his friend. Um, he raised um, Jairus' daughter, 
12-year-old little girl, right? He brings them back to life. And so it wasn't that Jesus was the first resurrection and therefore different. It was that Jesus never died again, right? That after death and Jesus raised, he ascended to the throne. So what Jesus is showing us and why we want to worship and honor him is this, is that Jesus' resurrection secured victory for us. That he has already shown us that he has the power of life over death and the fact that he has brought those back from death and given them life. He's shown us he has the power of that. And then he has shown us that death is defeated because when he is resurrected, death does not come for him again. It's been swallowed up in victory. That his sacrifice has satisfied the wrath of God. That victory has occurred. And yet, Jesus' body after resurrection, was recognized, right? It had scars. They, they saw the scars on his body. He ate, right? And so we see some continuity here that Jesus' resurrected body wasn't completely foreign and different, right? There was continuity, but it was transformed because he also just walked through walls. And he also ascended to heaven. And so what we see is that his body, was, there was continuity there, but it was also transformed, it's why when right, Paul has seen this, Paul on his way right in Acts is, is knocked off a horse by the resurrected living Savior. He has seen this resurrected Savior and knows, right, he recognized him. He knew him. It's why when the, the, transfigura- the transfiguration happens, where Jesus reveals his glory, right, to the, the inner circle of three disciples, that they're like, we don't need to leave this place. We would like to stay because what we've just seen and what we've just experienced, we want. Right? That he showed them not just this body that was covered in flesh, but his true nature. So his resurrection, right? There's continuity, but it's better. He continues this with not just agriculture talk, but look at verse 39. He also is going to argue that we understand that there are different kinds of bodies. Right? He goes, look, for not all flesh is the same. And he lists. He goes, there's one type of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. He's saying, we already know there are different types of bodies, so why couldn't we believe that there would be a resurrected body that would be different than the body we know now? That could be perfected. That would have no sickness, no sin, no disease. Where all tears could be wiped away. Why, why could we not believe that this body could be transformed by God? He, he then goes on and says in verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one of a kind, right? The, the people have marveled at the sun and the moon and the stars for millennia. It's like that we look and we see them, and he, and he talks about right, the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon and the glory of the stars, and he's like, and they're, they're different in, this, in the sky. They're different types of bodies. And some of them are in the, in the heavens and some of them are in the earth. He's like, we get that there are different types of bodies. And so the one we have now, he's saying it's earthly, right? It's, it's plain. It's of dust. The one that is coming will receive glory because it will be heavenly. He writes this as well. Paul does in Philippians 3. Listen to how he describes it here. Verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Listen to verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he's saying, look, right now we have a lowly body, a body that is subject to decay, to corruption, to death. But when we are transformed in the resurrection, it will still be us, but it will be us having put on the resurrection. That it will be different, and it will be glorious, because it will not be a lowly earthly body, but it will be a heavenly glorious body, like that that Christ has received. He is giving it to us. So this call to worship is to see that, right, we don't have to fear death because he's not thwarted by death. That his resurrection has secured victory and that our bodies will be transformed. It's also, though, in, in chapter 15, a call to salvation. That Paul's not just saying, hey, I want you to worship this one, but I want you to ask yourself some questions. I want you to consider whether you're in Christ or whether you are in Adam. That we're either following the first man or we're following the heavenly man. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What he's saying is, right, because of sin in our life, and the law has revealed that we have committed sin, that we have, we have transgressed the law of God. The law reveals that we haven't done what he's asked us to And the sting of sin is that it brings death. And so death separates us from God. And the fear we have in life is because we were meant to live forever. It's what we were created to be was with God forever, for all eternity, knowing Him and with Him and enjoying Him. And then sin separates us, and it brings death and destruction and decay. And it's why the world is broken the way it is. It's why we see tragic incidences in nature, because the world is groaning, longing for the way it was in perfection and creation. It's why we are separated from those that we love. It's why our bodies decay and fall apart and fail us. It's why our minds can do it and our bodies can be strong, and it's why our our bodies can be weak and our minds can, right, that things aren't the way they're meant to be. And sin is what has corrupted and brought us to this place. It's why we, we fear death, Because sin brings us guilt, and we know that it separates us. And in Genesis 2, 7, right, we have this image of God breathing life into Adam. After he has created him from the dust, he breathes life, spirit, into him. We understand that man and woman are created in the image of God, and we're meant to reflect him. But sin now has distorted that. And if you read in Genesis 5, 3, it says that as, as Adam and Eve began to have children, they had children in their own image, right? The language there was specific. It's not that we don't have the image of God on us anymore, but it's been distorted by sin. And so we look more like man than we look like God. It's why the church, when it's living in faithful obedience and it's reflecting the character of God, that it stands out as a shining light and beacon to a world that goes, we don't really recognize that. That is greater and more than what we know. So the question then Paul is saying is, are you this morning in Adam? Meaning that you're continuing to walk in death and decay, fearing death and knowing of your own demise? Or are you walking in Christ? That you're no longer fearing death, but that you know that that your death simply means that you were ushered into the presence of God. 
And so in Adam, we fear it because it, it's, it means separation. And in Christ, right, we, we, we have hope and that we don't mourn for those who are in Christ in the same way. Look at verse 49 and 50. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul reminds us that, look, there is a gap, there is a separation, that if we're walking in Adam, then our flesh and blood don't, don't, don't walk into heavenly places. We don't inherit this thing that is the kingdom of God unless we are in Christ unless we have been rescued by him and our eyes have been opened to see his glory. And that Scripture teaches that's not just knowledge that we would affirm, yes, there's probably a God, and if, if he's there, I believe in him. But it is a personal call of a loving Savior who calls us by name, who knows you by name, who loves you. And then you trust, and you follow, and you obey, and you love, and you cherish because he's rescued you. And you see that, that the sin that once would have separated from you, the sin that was the sting of death, the sin that you were guilty of, that he has now said, it is forgiven. Because I went and lived the life you were supposed to live. And then I died the punishment and the death that you deserved. Like I've, I've done it on your behalf, in your place. And the Lord has satisfied with my sacrifice. And now that I am alive and have beaten sin and Satan and death, and I tell you to follow me, where I'm taking you is back to the Father, what you were created for and what you were meant for. Do you trust that my death in your place is sufficient to put you at peace with God? For those who believe that, for those who God has stirred in their heart and called them and awakened them, then they're in Christ. So Paul is saying, are you in Adam this morning? Or are you in Christ? The good news for us, the good news for those that we would share the gospel with, is that God is redeeming, that he is resurrecting, that we don't have to fear death anymore, that, that death has, has been defeated. And look at even how Paul describes it. Verse 54 and 55. So then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Literally what Paul is doing here is he is taunting death. Right? He's going, what you got? You got nothing. And he doesn't, and he, do you notice he uses the word swallowed up? Right? He doesn't say death was put in its place or death was sent off with this idea if we watch a lot of movies, right, of like, did we really see the bad guy die? Right? Like he fell off the bridge, but we didn't really see a body. So that means he's probably coming back for us, right? He says it was swallowed, right? That, that in Christ, in his victory, it is swallowed. It is gone to be seen no more. We fear death no more. And, and, and Paul, right, is like acting like a five, six-year-old little boy going, my dad's going to whip you, right? And he's just doing it boldly and confidently, right, knowing his dad's back there, except Paul's right, the death has been whipped, and it has been defeated, and it has been swallowed up. And so we have good news that we don't fear that. And this world can be jacked and broken and unjust, and we know that there is a day where everything will be made right and restored. 
and our bodies will be whole, and our minds will be whole, and tears will be wiped away, and we will look back and say, light and momentary that was, compared to the weight of glory I'm now experiencing. That is the hope of the resurrection. That Jesus gave life to others, then we see resurrection in Him, and now He has promised it to us, that we are the harvest of the first fruit of His resurrection. Adam was a receiver of life. Jesus is a giver of life. Adam had to be blown into, and Jesus gives it to us. He calls us by name and makes us His. And it's why Jesus will say this in John 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She responded, yes, Lord. I believe that you are Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That in Christ we live. That we are already in eternity. Right? That the, the only hell that you will face is the hell that you face on earth. It's, 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 this is as bad as it'll ever get for you. And it's only better. So it's not just a call to worship. It's not just a call to salvation. It's also a call to action and what our motivation is. Look once again at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then we say, we, then we taunt death. Right? We, we are called to worship and we are called to reflect the glory of God because this happens. And what Paul is saying is like, look, for those who will die before Christ's return, right, in a twinkling of an eye, it, he's basically saying in the, in the smallest amount of time passing, as you can imagine, in a moment, right, when the resurrection occurs, right, we have glorious bodies like his. But he also says, Look, this is, we're going to continue this thing until Jesus comes back. So there will be some who will be living when Jesus comes back. And they will be in Christ. And it will happen for them in the same moment that they will not have this decaying, corruptible body any longer. But a new, glorious, resurrected body, even if they have not yet tasted death. That death is not necessary for this. It's that we have a body that is going to die. And so whether you are living in, at Christ's return or you have died... That we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. This idea of the trumpet, if you remember Exodus 19 and 20, um, when, when the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt, and they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and God begins to speak and to move and to work, and He's giving them the law and calling them into covenant, and there is lightning, and there is thunder, and there is fear, and the people around it are trembling. And it says that when the trumpet sounded, right, they knew that, that God's presence was there, that it was descending upon the mountain, and the mountain was shaking. And we see this multiple times in chapter 19 and 20. So the trumpet is simply a reminder of it's the presence of God. When God shows up, 
when he splits the sky, the dead will be raised, and in a twinkling of an eye, those who are living will have the resurrected bodies as well. So we will put off a perishable body, one that can die and decay, a natural body that's made of dust, a mortal body, and we will put on an imperishable one, which means death cannot come for us any longer, a spiritual body, a glorious body, an immortal body, in a moment. And so, Paul ends chapter 15 with verse 58. So therefore, because we have this God to worship, and because, right, we don't have to fear death any longer, and because he's calling us to live in Christ, he ends this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, he's talking to the church, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he doesn't say, hey, go work hard so that God will save you. He says, because the Lord has rescued you, his enemies, and made you sons and daughters of the king. Now, the, the, the things that we do to follow, to trust, to obey, to please, are done as evidence that he has rescued us and brought us to life, not as the means of our salvation. It means this, and, and these are the last two things that will be done this morning, that we don't have to live for glory in this world now. We don't have to live for the approval or the applause of men and women and culture now. Because we know that glory is coming. And the life that God has called us to will often be mocked by the world. They won't understand it. Why would you show any restraint? Why would you not gain all the pleasure you can? Why would you not do all that you can? Right? And, and so when we show restraint, when we show holiness, when we show obedience, because we are becoming more in the image of Christ, they're going to say, That's, you got one life to live. Why would you not get all that you can? Why would you not wring all that you can out of it? And we say, because we're going to live forever. <laughs> because we're going to get to enjoy the new creation and the new world forever. Because we don't have to fear death. And so it's why Paul, last week, throws out this like laundry list of how many times he's been beaten and mocked and left for dead and shipwrecked and imprisoned and all of these things. He's like, I can live that life because this isn't my only life. If, if this is it, then this is a really weird place to be right now. Right? Like, we're wasting time if this life is it. Go have fun. Right? Go, go do something enjoyable. Do something pleasurable. Because why would you gather with people you don't know on a Sunday morning on a cold day? Right? If we don't have more than this. But because we do, we care about people that we barely know. And we serve, and we pour out our lives, and we invite people into our homes, and we let 30 kids wreck our house, right? Because we believe that Jesus is enough, and that it transforms lives, and that God is worthy of that worship. And so we want more to know Him, to give Him that worship. And we want to serve one another. We want to build up the body, because this isn't all that we have. And so I don't have to have a glorious life now because I get glory for all eternity. The flip side of this is if you live for glory now, applause now, pleasure now, approval now, you will get shame for all eternity because you'll be separated from the glorious one and you will not be with him. And so you're going to get shame and you're going to get glory. It's just which one do you want for eternity? And those who are in Adam will get shame 
for all eternity, and those who are in Christ will get glory for all eternity. Daniel actually writes this in the last chapter, verse 12. Listen to how he says this, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Right? That there will be a day where all truth will be revealed, and all glory and vindication will happen. And so now we can labor for the sake of our King. We can work on His behalf, not to gain His salvation, but because He's given it to bring, to bring praise and glory and honor. We can serve one another, even if we seemingly, seemingly get nothing out of it. Because God is aware, and He's watching, and He's approving that He would say, well done, good and faithful servant. So here's the final thing. Ultimately, a lot of our action as a church is going to be that we have a life-from-death theology. That otherwise, a lot of what we do doesn't make sense. So if you've been with us very long, you've heard us talk about gospel communities. It's groups that meet throughout the week where we attempt to, to become family, to, to live life together, to serve one another, to pursue the Lord together, to be transformed together, to pray for one another, to weep with one another, to laugh with one another, to have mundane moments with one another, because we believe that we're supposed to be family. And that we do that together. And then occasionally what happens is a handful of folks from a gospel community actually leave that to start a new one. And you're like, whoa, wait a second, I like you. I don't, I don't want you to leave. I love you. Like, don't, what are you doing? This is painful. But that we understand that out of, out of death and out of loss comes life. And so we're willing to, to lose interaction and, and, and maybe consistent um, touch points and closeness of, of relationship because we know we get it for eternity. And so for a little while, we can suffer Right? And so we, we want to see more people know the Lord this way. We want more people to be known this way. We want more people to be served this way. We want Jesus to receive the worship of that. And so even though I would rather selfishly keep people to myself, that we can send, right, gospel communities into other neighborhoods and other communities, that we can eventually send other churches out if it means, hey, I would rather you be here. I would rather you be a part of this, and, and selfishly, I just want you here but because we believe that life comes from death and from loss and that ultimately the Lord is glorified and that this isn't all that life is, we can do this. And it doesn't mean there's not loss or hurt or pain or even um, a loss of comfort, but we see that there's something bigger at play, something worth it at play for the glory of Christ and the benefit of his body, that we would serve one another. So the resurrection, it affects all of life, not just the end of life. It's what Paul is trying to help them understand is, I want you, therefore, my beloved brothers, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding of the, in the work of the Lord, and know that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That, that the burdens that you carry on behalf of others are not in vain that the prayers that you weep out on behalf of others are not in vain, that the loss of time and energy and money 
and effort and all those things are not in vain because you are living for the glory of your king and for the building up of the church. So that's why he's ending it this way because he's like, look, we want you to reflect the glory in Corinth. This is how we do it. We believe that the end is not here and that we want you to walk in Christ. So church, um, next week we'll, we'll re- read through and preach through chapter 16 and we'll finish 1 Corinthians. This morning, um, the Lord's Supper is set up. Um, and, and, and the way we're going to do it this morning is there's going to be uh, three songs here in a minute. At any point during those songs, you can get up and go as an individual with friends, as a, as a family, and take the, the cup, his blood spilt on, on our behalf, the bread, his body broken on our behalf, knowing that the reason we have hope this morning is because he went to the cross so that we don't have to, and that he's alive. And so we're taking that to remember, it's why we have hope, and then we're singing knowing he's hearing it because he's alive. And so the band it will come up, um, they're going to lead us um, just in some instrumental for a moment, so you can pray, you can let the Spirit minister to you, that you can ask, am I walking in Christ, am I walking in Adam? Am I living as a resurrected person with hope in eternity? And then we will stand and we will sing to our King who is present with us. We'll take for the believers, those who trust in Jesus, the cup and the bread and honor him. If you need someone to talk with, to pray with, there'll be some folks in the back of the room that would love to do that with you. But would you respond as the Spirit is leading this morning? Let's pray.